This upcoming concert season will be all about the boots, and Tecovis is your stop for the best in Western style. Tecovis has seasonal and limited edition offerings this spring and summer, including men's and women's boots, apparel, hats, bags, and more. All Tecovis boots are made by hand in a time-honored tradition with timeless styles that are always on trend. And Tecovis has first wear comfort with little to no break-in period. It's hard to find this level of comfort paired with this level of style. Stop by your local Tecova store, have a complimentary drink or two, that's WCB style, and shop new styles. The smell of fresh leather and friendly staff are at your service. Many stores even have leather custom branding to make your boots truly personalized. And with regular live music and events, there's no in-store experience like it. If you can't make it into a store, just visit tecovas.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. They offer free shipping on all boots, as well as free returns and exchanges, and ship right to your door. Go to tecovas.com and find your new favorite pair of boots today. Midway USA brand product designers have one straightforward goal. Develop high-quality, technically sound products and deliver them to customers at reasonable prices. If you are immersed in the shooting sports industry and pay close attention to every single detail, you know our products are built right and stand up to everyday use. Who has shooting mats and range bag systems to hunting clothing and just about everything for the outdoors? Log on and shop 24-7 with super fast shipping. MidwayUSA.com So there's a reason why I started Blood Origins. And that reason is simple. Is that I wanted to convey the truth about hunting. It brings awareness to to non-hunters that it's it's more than just killing animals. How do I start it, Brittany? My name. My name. Is, <laughs> Does my hair look okay? It's my name is Mike Axelrod. Start again. Yeah, I hated it too. <laughs> Braxton, you said something in the car to me. You said that you were living on borrowed time. Hmm. There's a perception around who hunters are, what we're supposed to be, and a a feminist that works for a non-profit that is a hunter that has only eaten wild game for the last 20 years is likely not the thing that people think about when it comes to a hunter. Heidschmidt, Peach Tree, get a hold of you yet? Peach Street, Peach Tree, Peach Street. Peach Street, Peach Street distiller, distilleries. Agave Extra, I think is what it's called. No word yet. No word yet. Is that lemonade, Robbie? No, this is a uh, Moscow Mule. Thank Ooh. you very much. That is not the type of container that you put a Moscow Mule in. Yes, that's correct. I did want to put it in a copper mug, uh, but there's going to be way too much condensation with the computer and all this you know, stuff that we have going on here. Uh, oh. But... I am drinking good Russian vodka. Sorry for those of you um, out there. Stolichnaya. People may not say that Stolichnaya is a good vodka. Um, Moscovaya. I have not seen Moscovaya in a long time. Did they quit making Moscovaya? The green labeled. I don't. I don't. I don't think anyone in this crew is going to know the answer to that. We could. We could turn that out to the audience. Someone could please text us. At six two zero eight six zero forty eight oh four and let us know what happened to Robbie's vodka. Mosk I will say this. 
it, I, I need to dig up a picture, and I think my mm-hmm. mom has it. You, you can still get it. $104.99 online. Oh, sweet. Thanks, Carver. You need my address. Is that it? That is it? Yeah. You can. You uh, can get it at Mexican Cartel. Premium Spirits. <laughs> I, uh... My grandfather used to have a. It was almost like the bathroom off of the, off of the living room, off of the dining room. It's where guests would go in Mozambique, and the bathroom was covered in white tiles. It was a big. I can still remember. It was a big blue wildebeest skull above the toilet that had two toilet paper rolls like stuck on the blue wildebeest's horns, and every, what. What Leo Kroger was about was tasting different types of vodka. And I swear to you. And he would take the label off of those vodka labels. And he would stick it on each one of those tiles in the bathroom. And there was probably 80 to 90 vodka labels in this in this bathroom. Did he put like a clear coat over them so they didn't get messed up or... I don't know how he did it. It was I was obviously super young, you know, eight, nine, ten. When, but I distinctly remember it. I distinctly remember the the, the horns of the toilet paper over it. There was even one of those cases because he was so in love with vodka. There was one of those cases that had a vodka inside of it in case of emergency emergency break glass. You get the vodka. Nice. I like that. I like the labels idea. Yeah, that's kind of a cool idea, actually. That's a lot of time. He had to have someone like, like I would have to have someone that I threw a bottle to and said, hey, get the label off this neatly, or I would never get that project done. He was one of those characters that people would just send him stuff, right? If he said he was interested in X, people would just, from around the world, just send him vodka labels. Does that work? I had this. Um, here. Go ahead. No, I, I, hey, hey, people from around the world, I'm interested in Peachtree Distilleries Agave Extra. No, he was saying, he said labels, not alcohol. Oh, labels. But that doesn't that kind of defeat the, 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 I don't know, this, I know this isn't the right word, but coolness of it, if he didn't drink the vodka before placing it onto the tile. Dude, this guy was cooler beyond cool. I, I think at that uh, he just—I guess he didn't care. You know, he was going to spin a, a tail one way or another. I think. Uh, I, I, picked, I think Grandpa Seco was getting people to send him the vodka. That's what I think, which gives you back the cool. They were sending him vodka from around the world. He was drinking it, and then I just have this feeling that Grandma was probably peeling the labels off. May have been Grand. May have been Grandpa's idea. But I just think the frustration of trying to get the label off without tearing it, that seems like something that eventually Grandma just took the role of. Oh, no, 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 no. They had it down pat. They knew exactly how to do it. They'd take a vodka bottle because I watched my dad do it many, many times. Because the other thing that you don't know, and I've got a a box somewhere here, is that they created their own vodka label. And it was called Elephant's Delight. And it has this caricature sketch of how they went and harvested elephant dung and fermented elephant dung and created vodka. And then they have this person drinking it and bliss. And then somebody like passed out and it was called elephants delights Kroger's special vodka. And so they would drink Stolichnaya vodka in the, in the 750 ml bottle. They would 
put the bottle, fill it up with water, bury it under in the sink with water, and then leave it for 24 hours. And the label would peel off because the glue would yeah. um, unadhere itself. And then they would put their own label on it and fill it up with real vodka, Stolichnaya vodka. And then they would um, infuse it with like a, a lemon rind or whatnot to give it this like slight yellow tint to the vodka. And they would then, you know, send it out for gifts and stuff like that. Do you have a bottle of this? I have the labels. I have the labels somewhere. I'll have to dig them up. Um, it may be in a box right there. So when you guys get, when Cody gets on a tear and just starts talking for 20, you know, 10 minutes, like he typically does, I'll have a little bit of time to grab one of the labels and I'll show you guys. That's rude. It's not rude when it's the truth. Yeah, that's true. Here we go. The article that I, the article that I sent late, did I know Daryl got, did you get to read it, Ravi? The one that I sent out to you guys like 30 minutes ago? So yahoo.com, wind energy company kills 150 eagles in the U.S., pleads guilty. Like, how else would you plead? No, we didn't do that. Okay, but here's my question for you. And I think, I think, uh, I think that you're actually going to have some serious insight into this because of your, you know, your real job. They got fined eight. Did he just leave? Oh, they got fined $8 million for not pre-buying the permits to kill these eagles. No, they're not pre-buying. That doesn't happen. That doesn't happen. Okay, then no, they're not. Because the article states in there, well, it's two things. It's not just the permits, but they also did not do whatever the level of prevention that there is prescribed by whoever on, you know, to prevent eagle deaths or bird deaths, right? Like shutting off their wind, the, the windmills during certain times where eagles are, you know, more present, stuff like that. So it wasn't just, they didn't get the permits, but they also completely bypassed all the other things that everybody else that's building windmills had to go through. And that's one of the reasons why, at least that's what I got article totally totally so i would have made the assumption okay if i was in the wind farm building business i would have to satisfy certain environmental compliance um, regulations okay now it depends on where the money comes from this is very 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 important if the money came from that was subsidized like a federal tax or some sort of money from a federal agency, you would have had to comply with all sorts of different federal regulations, including the Migratory Bird Treaty Act, as well as the Bald Eagle Act, which are environmental compliance measures that you have to put in place to ensure that you're mitigating take or mitigating loss associated with certain species. Um it, it happens in different environments. You get different acts, right? You've got NIMS with the National Marine Fisheries Act. You've got Gulf Sturgeon Critical Habitat if you're working in water. Migratory Bird uh, Treaty Act as well as the Bald Eagle Act are two pieces of environmental permitting, environmental compliance that you should have taken into consideration if you are building wind turbines. Now. If it was all privately funded and it was funded in freaking Podonk County X or Y 
and the permitting process is through the county, probably not, not going to be forced to get those kinds of permits. But uh, all, all, all that makes sense. I, I was aware of all of that. The article explicitly says that they didn't buy permits to kill eagles. That's why it got included. And that's the part I don't understand. I'm not making that part up. It says, it says yes, they didn't take the precautionary measures. And I think they should. I love eagles. I'm a fan of eagles. I don't really like wind turbines. I think they're ugly and screw up the landscape. But I don't understand the part where it says they didn't buy the permits to kill the eagles. So it says here that these two companies, ESI and Next ERA, received hundreds of millions of dollars in federal tax credits from the wind power they produce. The net, the next era spokesperson said the company did, didn't seek permits because it believes the law didn't require them, require them for unintentional bird deaths. The company said it's guilty plea will resolve all allegations. All right, let me see where you're seeing it. They, oh, I'll find it for you. They, this is this, this flabbergasted me. I read this 45 times. It's in, uh, it's right below the ad break. Well, I don't know. That's maybe just on my phone. Prosecutors said the company's failure to take steps to protect eagles or to obtain, to obtain, kill the bird. Yeah. 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 Obtain, not buy. Huge difference between the two. Okay, but not in my oh, mind. Shit. The fact that they got to get permits whatsoever for accidental deaths. Yeah, yeah. You. That is the point of the Migratory Bird Species Act and the Bald Eagle Act. So if they had gone through that environmental compliance review process, they would have pulled in. I don't know if that, that probably falls under Fish and Wildlife Service. So that would have pulled in Fish and Wildlife Service. Fish and Wildlife Service would have said, okay, based on the number of wind turbines that are going up, we expect X amount of birds to be taken. Or they would have said, okay, and I have no idea how they would do this, but they would have to put in some sort of compens compensatory or mitigation measures to avoid as much take or unintentional strikes as possible. All right. I don't want to drag it out anymore, but it doesn't make any, it, it kind of makes me get all anti big government y. That seems like I'm, I'm all about protecting eagles. I don't know that the wind company needs to buy eagle harvest tags in an assumption of how many eagles they're going to kill. That, that part of it was. So if you read down in the article, it says that. They were warned that eagles would be killed if they built the two wind farms. They knew about the risk to eagles. Um, when the when the thing was when the when the wind farm was authorized, the company proceeded anyway. Ignored advice from federal wildlife officials officials about how to minimize the deaths. And so it's essentially the classic case of how do we get these things in the ground as soon as we possibly can, and and sort of run around the environmental compliance requirements. And so they paid almost $30,000 per eagle kill. I am going to drag this out a little bit because they obviously got all of the – like they didn't kill any more eagles than they would have. They didn't 
intentionally killing the Eagles. They just ignored advice. And it, no, they, they ignored advice from federal officials that said, this is, you need to do something about this. All right. I, I, I guarantee I'm going to go back and listen to this and I'm going to come off like an asshole that thinks that people should kill eagles with industry. I found the label. Kroger's Delight, Elephant's Delight, see? Goes through everything. Goes through the process. Yeah, that's sweet. It's a great label. When that came up. Say that again. I said clearly they were they were drinking vodka when they decided to do that. Oh, one thousand percent, one thousand percent. So anyway, those of you that are obviously this is an audio visual medium, um, audio medium through a podcast, and we apologize as you can't see this. Uh, but uh, yeah, I have a decent stack. Look, we can do a, a lot. Post a picture of that on uh, Blood Origins Instagram so folks can that listen to this can go look at that uh, label. I'll do it. I'll do it on the, on the same day that this this podcast drops because it is it is history. It's family history. It is family history. Elephants. So we have a lot of um, not much happening in the news right now. Um, we do have. A couple of things happening. It all seems to be in Africa right now. Things are obviously quieting down because legislative seasons are closing. Uh, I know Mississippi's legislative uh, session closed yesterday or two days ago. Um, anything on the wires that you can hear about? I saw Tennessee was trying to ban out, outside dogs. What is it with this whole freaking outside dog banning situation? It happened in Georgia. It's, it's, Doesn't all that shit have to be driven by one squeaky wheel constituent, or or like or five squeaky wheel constituents that just pound their lawmaker with this guy's coon dogs won't quit running through my backyard? I mean, isn't that what it's driven by? A little bit. You've also got to remember that at the at the heart of things, this is all politics, right? So you've got one senator or one house representative that's representing a set of constituents and for him to show that he's listening he brings forward this bill that is a big topic somehow in his county whether it's um some animal abuse situation that has come up or like you say some coon dogs running through the backyard um some anything it could be anything but they bring it forward, knowing full well that it's not gonna it's not gonna fly. But they can turn around to their constituents and say, "See, I tried." They, the rest of the, the the rest of the bloody government in our respective state doesn't listen to us. Further, further validating their support for future election process. Exactly. That's all that everyone is thinking about. Is as soon as you get into office, it's not about what they can do that will actually make a difference right now. It's about what will get me into office in four years or two years. Keep me. Yeah. Keep me there. Yeah. Yeah. I certainly remember going through a process in a leadership class at the university when I was there and they went through the whole political process. And essentially you had to be that person. You had to decide like how you were investing your time and whatnot. And, Literally, that I remember distinctly on that exercise, you get voted in and you win. 
and within the next two weeks, you're already plotting out how to win again. You know, the only person that I can think of in my mind that did it the way I like, Gary Johnson was the governor in New Mexico. And the dude vetoed like 709 straight bills. And all he ever, <laughs> all he ever talked about was telling the, the Congress of New Mexico or that the representatives in the Senate in New Mexico to go home and do their real jobs. That's all he ever talked about. You know that the United States Constitution mandates that Congress meets for two weeks out of every year? That's what the founding, that's what the founding fathers had in mind. Not the, a, a year-round job where they have to make up shit to do. Okay, I'm off my anti-government, my anti-big government. It also took three months for some people to get to D.C., though. Good, good. It still should. They should, they should meet for two weeks a year, be like, is there anything we need to do? Nope. Okay, go home. We did get three. We got three texts this week, Robbie. We did? Yeah, and I forgot to shoot them. Dave text us. Dave, did Dave text us. Dave text us. Yes. And he started I like with, Dave. I'm glad there's somebody besides my wife that notices my absence. <laughs> here's here's the other thing. Dave talks about he just got his Wisconsin patron's license. Have you ever heard of this? Mm-mm. 165 bucks in Wisconsin. A resident gets everything. A resident just hunts. And has access to all. Just you get a, it's a patron's license. This is the, this is another. This is Wisconsin being good government in my mind. There's exceptions, he says, like bear, bobcat, and elk. But for hundred and sixty-five dollars, everything else, hunting and fishing, this is all he has to carry is this one piece of paper. Amazing. His deer tag is his hunting license. It's his park access. It's his fishing license. It's a trapping permit. It's a, it's every. That's the way. It, if anyone from Colorado that's a decision maker is listening, go study this because I have to have a team of assistants help me make sure I don't screw up my Colorado licensing procedures every year. So yes. Do you think? Let me ask this question. There's obviously only a vote of three here. Would you be willing to pay a little bit more if you could have access to that? Yes. I vote yes too. Oh yeah, yeah, hundred percent. Wait, yeah, wait, I mean, yeah, absolutely. But that's a fine balance, though. Like, just because we'd be willing to pay more doesn't mean that there should be because there's one hundred and sixty-five bucks. Here it comes. Here Elvis, it comes. Here it comes. One hundred and sixty-five bucks is a legitimate amount of money. There are some people that would like access to that. A lot of people that would like access to that, that that $165 expenditure, it's not about whether or not a certain group of people could afford to pay more. It's about the perfect median of getting the most money into the program without eliminating lower economic structures from having access to it. Agreed. There's a fine balance there. If, and if, if you and I were in Wisconsin and thought we'd be willing to pay more for that, then we should round up $200 when we check out online from buying it, right? I mean, that's, I'm, I'm not, I, I, I'm a fan of people pay, paying their way, but I'm not a fan of hunting and fishing becoming a rich man's sport because, yes, absolutely. I would pay three times that for that same thing in Colorado. 
but that doesn't mean that's what it should be. Next text is from Nick in Nebraska. It says, hey, Blood Origins team, I just wanted to say thank you for what you guys do. I came about Blood Origins after hearing Robbie speak on another podcast and have been hooked on your podcast ever since. Have listened to most of your episodes. Currently a non-hunter who wants to get into hunting. Oh, damn. And enjoy getting to hear the various perspectives of your of the people you have on your podcast, specifically the adult onset types. I'm 25 in parentheses. That being said, how does an adult get started in hunting? I don't really know anyone who hunts, and I'm not sure where to start. Any advice would be appreciated. So, number one, freaking legend, non-hunter, listening to the Blood Origins podcast, hooked on the Blood Origins podcast. Absolutely. Dang. I have an email back to him already, promising that Daryl will spend all of his fall this year taking Nick hunting or whatever he wants to do. I'm just kidding. Listen, Nick, if you're listening to this, Daryl's honestly pretty grumpy and you don't want to deal with him. Um, but but I have I do have a text back to him and we're going to start an email conversation and just kind of figure out how to make Well, we can certainly put out, um, once we know about more about him, we can certainly put out a call uh, through our social media to say anyone in Nebraska willing to help someone else to go out in the field. Um Lots of programs that uh, can help you, Nick. Um, I'm, sh- you know, backcountry hunters and anglers are certainly in the in the hunting recruitment game and are trying to put some in place. There's lots of other programs. Uh, you know, what would you suggest? Maybe starting with, you know, Nebraska has some upland bird opportunities, right? Yeah, probably the easiest point of entry. You know, pretty easy to come across the shotgun. You know, even if it's a uh, borrowing one from a friend and. Uh, you know, hunter safety, those type of things. I have a text back to him with the, to take it to email and start that conversation. We'll work through what his kind of a specific situation is. Um, I even have a couple of folks in Nebraska that are options, but I just want to make a, you know, feel it out um, that, that that might take him bird hunting. So we'll see where he's at. You know, the other, the other thing that he could do is um, what are our friends – um, Mark and Nick with the Land Trust Co. Maybe some people to to connect with there, and that's you know they're they're starting up that private land access program, and I'm sure they've got pro- properties in Nebraska that you could pay a forty buck fee to go on, or a hundred buck fee for the weekend, or something like that. It's I'll have to check in with those guys. Yeah, absolutely. And again, I'm going to get uh, Nick going on email, and and uh, not that not that we're in the business of completely making guarantee guarantees for every non-hunter that wants to give it a shot, but we will put some work in to try and make that happen for Nick. And uh, we'll let you know how it goes here on the roundup. I think for the record, Nick, I'm not a grumpy person and I would absolutely love to go hunting with you and anybody else for that. Grumpy. He's grumpy as hell, Nick. He's a, he's an incredible hunter. One of the best I've ever been around, but he'll scare you off. Um, our next text is from Tim. Tim is a longtime listener. Has actually been a uh, guest here on the Roundup. Tim starts it with, "Hey, fellows, Tim here. Wow, that Roundup really needed a guest." <laughs> he did. He did put. I kid, of course. And for those of you that don't know, last Roundup was just me and Robbie. Um, and Tim offers to primarily Cody and me 
chirping. Yeah, that's yeah. that's the way the audience has let us know they like it, Robbie. And uh, he offers to come back on and be on the roundup again. So I reached out to him, and we might just schedule that and make it happen. 100%. What I love about what we do at Blood Origins, obviously we do a, a, a lot of stuff that I love, um, but the fact that we're just so personal, right? We'll, we'll talk to you. Text us. We'll text you back. Email us. We'll email you back. Um, except crazy emails like the one we just received that has a google.com map. Not going to answer that email. Um, but yeah, we're small enough. We're going to stay small. We're going to stay connected to our audience, to our family of Blood Origins. Yes, so, yes we are. Text us 620-860-4804. Send us an email at info at bloodorigins.com. And buy some swag. Hey, Carla, did your swag arrive yet? It sure did yesterday. How is it? Is it good? Uh, yeah. I mean, I I washed it. It's in the in the closet right now, oh, being prepared. Whoa, to... whoa, 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 whoa! It, it arrived, and you washed it immediately. Yeah. <laughs> I told you, Nick. That's who he is. He's a guy that washes shit before he wears it the first time. Do you really want to hunt with like, that? Who does that? I have never done that, Carver. Hell, I don't know where it's been before it's going it's on my It's come body. out of the store. It's brand new. <laughs> oh, my god! And gosh. now it's even softer than it was when I got it. Well, send us a couple of pictures. You ordered the long sleeve. Yeah. Um We've got a long sleeve black Blood Origin shirt, and then we've got a white, a new white shirt with a, a black helix on it. Uh, it's about time that I, I did another country Blood Origin shirt, Cody. What country should we do next? We did UK. We sold probably a dozen UK Blood Origin shirts. Let's go. Let's go. Um, Canada? Yeah. Yeah. Canada's coming on strong. For those of you that listen, Internationally, for the longest time, Australia was our number two behind the United States, obviously, where we where we are located. Australia was our number two listening audience to the podcast. Canada has taken over. Oh, my gosh. Canada is now strongly our number two listening audience and growing rapidly. Got the Canada Facebook page up and going. We're, we're uh, a lot of cool stuff coming out of Canada. Also, a lot of... Uh, Canadian hunters have some battles in front of them too. Going, oh shit! British Columbia. Yeah, I would say just British Columbia. It's crazy, absolutely craziness that's happening there. Well, let's talk about the three articles that we have in front of us. We have three that are very much uh, centric around trophy hunting in Africa. Um, the news has been, as we said in the beginning, quite a little, a little bit quiet, and. Um, the guy that authored two of the articles is a guy called uh, Michael. How would you how would you say his last name? Michael Sassrolfs or T Sassrolfs? Yeah. How would you say that? I don't. Uh, I don't mess with those kind of things. I have no idea. I do know he's on a he is on a WhatsApp group with me, and uh, the two articles that he's published here recently. Uh, one was in Resource Africa called Reconsidering the Economic Revel Relevance of Recreational Hunting. And the next one was in The Conversation, which is uh, – we've had The Conversation on here before, 
uh, we quite like the the tagline of the conversation, which is academic rigor, journalistic flair. And uh, his article in that one was called How Legal Hunting Supports African Rhino Conservation. Obviously, there's still a lot of swirling around the import bans. Uh, Belgium, the Parliament of Belgium, just pushed forward their own ban on the import of trophy hunting. And what we start, we're starting to hear from a lot of the antis that follow us is that, well, the banning of imports is not equal to the banning of hunting, which is true. However, there has to be a corollary. There has to be a reason for why you would ban the import of trophies because you strongly believe that that would lead to a decrease in hunting. So I'm a t- Maybe not a ban. Buckle up. Here we go. I'm going to tell you what this is. It's, that's the same kind of bullshit as compassionate conservation. And what it is is a response to realizing your dad is fucked. Okay. They have realized that the ban on hunting, everything we've been, not not we, everything everyone's been saying, what you would do to those African nations if you banned hunting is true. The data's there, the proof's there, everyone's seen it. So now they're making these public statements of that they're not trying to ban hunting, right? Because because everyone, the, the, the middle... Our target audience is starting to realize that if you ban hunting in those African countries, people are going to starve. It's real. It's the only industry in a lot of those places. It's no different than we, and again, when I say we, a ton of people other than Blood Origins, including our messaging, have proven to them that hunting ethically is good for conservation so now they've cha- they're changing their mindset to compassionate conservation where we have to worry about the individual animal and not the population size. That's what that is. It's a response to losing the original battle. Carver, any thoughts to trophy hunting? And let me ask this. Let me maybe throw a controversial piece out. And I don't know. You both have hunted at John X. You both, and John X is in the Eastern Cape, phenomenal safari company, phenomenal place to go hunt. You both have hunted there. We funded a project with John X, and you both have interacted with Doug Cockcroft. Doug Cockcroft runs Splitting Image Taxidermy, a taxidermy specialist in South Africa that will do all the taxidermy for you in South Africa. Doug has said, okay, ban the import of trophies. We'll just make replicas. Thoughts, Carver. Well, let me let me step back for just kind of something to maybe a way to when when this whole thing came up, especially when Cody just said this. This is the thing that I don't understand, or or and I'm pretty simple minded compared to YouTube intellectuals, but the thought about banning the importation of trophies but defending that we're not trying to stop hunting. I'm, I'm confused here because people who don't want us to bring trophies in and the ones that tried and continue to try to keep us from hunting, their biggest claim about hunters is, is that all we do is kill animals and then throw them on the ground and, and do nothing with it, right? 
So no, we it's chop their heads off and we take the right. trophies home. You know, so but it's but it's like you know we'll allow you to hunt, but you basically can't do anything with you know with anything that you take from the animal. You can't bring it back to the states. You can't import it. You can't do anything with that thing. Which you know, in in my eyes, it just almost is counter to what their initial goal was initially. You know, was to stop hunting in you know completely. But what they're trying to do, like you said, is is we don't want you to go. We, we don't want to let you bring the, the animals that you you know that you go and, and ethically hunt back into the states or whatever country it is, right? But you can go hunt, and I think that that thought process is is you know why would people go hunt in Africa? Why would you go hunt in these loca- locales if you can't bring your trophy back to you know enjoy that on you know in your living room or wherever you decide to place that thing? So it's going to decrease hunting, and it actually accomplishes their goal from the get go. Um, but yeah, I don't. I mean, if they banned importation, I would do. Would you go replicas? I would absolutely do replicas. I would. So here's the, here's a here's a funny statement that I can't remember who said it. I think it was Pedro Ampero, and he was referencing some Pakistani talking about it, and it was tied to the trophy. And the trophy typically is the skull, the antlers or horns, and the cape. Okay. And he was referencing the fact that the locals would say, would say, yeah, we want you to take those things because those are the least important things to us. Those are the things we don't care about. Those are the things that are going to end up just being thrown off on the side in the ditch anyway. Because What are we going to use them for? That's exactly why taxidermy was invented. Once, once we stopped as a society making our clothes from hides, what were we going to do with the three essentially most worthless pieces of the animal for the extent of creating a survivable tool afterwards or eating it? I mean, that, that, that's where taxidermy came from. What can we do with this? How can we create a memento? I mean, no one was it, – it wasn't that hundreds of years ago somebody went out – I mean – all people have to fall back on is is the commercial what what a hundred years ago in the United States was a commercial hunting trade, right? And obviously the American bison probably the worst in quantities. I, I guess I guess you could argue the elephant very much for ivory, but the, the American bison was a horrible example of people in fancy cities wanted buffalo coats, right? Um, and so a ton of wanton waste of Buffalo happened. It just doesn't happen anymore in, in, and if it does, it's poaching and illegal and and we don't stand with it. I, but isn't that where taxidermy came from? What do we do with these things that have no other value to us? I don't think so. I think that, I think the origination of taxidermy came from the museum trade to be able to put a animal together that represented that animal as lifelike as possible so that people from around the world could understand that animal, see that animal, get an idea of what that animal is. 
but not be able to go to that I place. think you could say modern taxidermy, but but native and indigenous people were taking the worthless parts of the animal, the parts that didn't help them to survive, and creating creating art, creating things that were a luxury item. No, but that's not taxidermy, though. The, the true not? taxidermy was the shit. I can't remember the guy's name. I read a, uh, you know, I read all about him. The first guy who first with Teddy Roosevelt took a bison and put it in the Smithsonian and. Gosh, I can't remember the guy's name now. Um, Can you say Carl Ackley? Carl who? Ackley. Ackley, that's right. That's right. Nice one, Carver. Jeez. You don't even have to Google that. Oh, you did Google it. Look at you. You're so bloody fast with your fingers, man. Can you say Roosevelt's well, first name? I can't remember. Theodore. Theodore. Teddy. Mm. Your Teddy is pretty close to Teddy. I got to be honest. Well, let me read this real quick. So Carl Ackley, widely considered the father of modern taxidermy, was not only a taxidermist, but also a naturalist, sculptor, writer, and inventor. He worked in several museums, including the Field Museum, serving as chief taxidermist. Yeah, you, you're, talking about a, you're talking about functionality and the word taxidermy. People for a long time took trophies of the worthless parts of the animal, the horns of a deer, the 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 skull of a thing, and made artwork out of it. People, I mean, I'm sure. talking for thousands of years, they made mementos of the hunt. And they made it out of the parts of the animal that weren't made into tools or eaten or made into clothes. And we added the cape when we quit making clothes out of hides as as our general method of making clothes so that i'll stand by my point well um so let's talk about oh hold on don't switch uh, articles yet i got one question uh, the 2013 study that he references in the first article the the study that essentially a bunch of oh my gosh yeah, conservation the gs the the GGA? Yeah, that there's no economic benefit to hunting in Africa, basically, right? The most regurgitated study by non-hunters ever in terms of an African discussion. Well, it's the 3%, right? They always focus on this bloody 3% that came out of one article tied to one table that was essentially... Um, misconstrued. It's, it's, it's one that... It, it, that 3% thing is tied to area and community development. They totally ignore the other fees that are going straight into the economies themselves. I'm going to have to do a proof on the 3%. The 3% is the thorn in our side that nobody has ever decided to like, this is what the 3% is and debunk it. Are you talking about the 3% GDP? No. The the and what the the number three percent you'll even see it in the beginning of that article of that report on page three and the report the report is for everyone listening it's the Economist that's large uh, the two hundred million dollar question how much does trophy hunting really contribute to African communities um, and in the on the summary document on page three it says. Um, 
Research published by the Pro Hunting International Council for Game Wildlife Conservation, the UN Food and Wildlife Food and Agriculture Organization, supported by the other authors, finds that hunting companies contribute only 3% of their revenue to communities living in hunting areas. And that is completely utter rubbish. Now, now, correct me if I'm wrong, though. That's that's based on the fact that they're looking at national-level data versus at the community-level data, right? No, they're looking at one specific paper by Booth in 2010 in which he creates a table in which on that table there's various things, wildlife division fees, operating expenses, management costs, wages and welfare, all the things that you know of components that are being pumped back into the community. Yet there's one section in the table that says area and community development, 3%. So 3% of the money is dedicated to that. None of the extraneous current money that goes into that is included. Like the, like payroll. Payroll that Correct. go, I mean, you know, supplies that they buy, all of the things that happen that wouldn't happen if they weren't there. The 3% is just the actual, like, you have to pay this back into that. I don't understand Correct. why. Here's what I don't. Here's the thing I don't like. Is I don't like groups of people. Here, here's, here's what I'll do. I'll get sappy about Daryl. Daryl spent 145 years in the Marine Corps. And. Wow, I can tell, and he's and he's got a luscious hair the way that he has. One hundred and forty-five no, years. True. He spent twenty-five years in the Marine Corps, and I can promise you there were other Marines that didn't like him. Some, and the reason was he took the honor of the institution seriously, right? And if everyone did that, if cops took the honor of the institution of being a cop seriously, and in this case, if scientists, someone should check that report. Someone should come out and say, this is bunk science that you've turned out here and you've made claims to meet an agenda. No, the science is good. No, but when the science is just the cherry picking, it's the cherry picking of the science. It's the interpretation of the science. No, no, no. The, but but the interpretation is done within that report. It's not. Are you saying that the 2013 yeah, Australian no, Commission no. report is written well? It's it, it's not a scientific document, is what I'm saying. It's claimed to be. It's a report. You said it yourself. It's a report. Anyone can write a report. Come on, let's be honest here. It's not peer reviewed. It wasn't sent out to a bunch of. Uh, objective scientists to give their opinions on it. Okay, would you disagree that it's misrepresented to the general public as being science, all-encompassing science? And it's just—it's to me, it's like the Yellowstone ecology report after the wolf, the axe for action on the wolf. That was a very misleading propaganda, agenda-driven document. Of course, it was—it was funded by the Humane Society International. But why, why doesn't someone come out and say that? Why doesn't someone come out and say, look, here's the deal on this, and here's the, here's the non, non-partisan, non-opinionated analysis of this to show you that this is a propaganda document and not – because 
man, they believe it, Robbie. You've seen, you've seen me a hundred times argue with someone on our social media who's gotten the data from that report. They don't know where it came from, but they read some meme that HSUS mm-hmm. put out that said 3% of all hunting dollars go back to the community. Mm-hmm. And someone has got to someone has got to take the time to debunk that to maintain the 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 honor of the institution. And it that shit drives me crazy. Sorry. My glass is getting empty. It's almost like when you're <laughs> when you're arguing with anti-hunters and some of these organizations that it's it's like I know you are but what am I like that's the argument that you have right like whatever you say bounces off me and sticks to you there's no there's no support to it there's it's it's you know an individual's interpretation and then they plaster it out there and a lot of people who are you know don't go out and research and find that extra little bit of information like you're talking about, Robbie, where you go through the report and you look at it and you actually dissect it and figure out what the information actually represents, you know, without that extra mile that, you know, most people just won't do, then it's left to interpretation. And you're, what you're going to have is exactly what we have right now, which is, you know, people plastering up a, 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 you know, some, some words on an article and everybody who's not willing to, you know, be passionate and take that extra step to look for the information and make a, a, an educated guess, they just go with the masses or the minority, to be honest with you, like like Cody said right, right off the bat tonight. So, mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think, look, these articles repeatedly come back to the idea of how is hunting – you know that's the that's the quintessential question. How is hunting benefiting wildlife? How is hunting benefiting wild uh, communities? And when that community question comes up, it's all tied to economics. Um, and really, I don't think anyone has has done. Um, you know, and that's why we're so interested in doing this kind of work is that nobody's ever just done bitten the bullet and said, "Okay, here's a specific example. Open the books. Show us the books." So. I, I do. I will say, though, you know, just to maybe get back to the article, I, I thought that the the article, How Legal Hunting Supports African Rhino Conservation, I thought they did a pretty decent job at just kind of showing a lot of the data and 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 showing that uh, that legal hunting based on the way that it's written out actually is helping out the rhino populations in, you know, in Africa. I thought they did a pretty decent job at it. Oh, 100 percent. Hundred percent. He he's a very pragmatic. Um, it was actually written. I don't know who was it written by. I couldn't. I thought it was Michael T. St. Rolfs that wrote it, but it, it wasn't. It is. Yes, yeah. it is. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. I see it off to the right. I see it off to the right now. Yeah. Yeah. Um, but yeah, he goes through the article. If, if people want to see it, it's on the conversation. How legal hunting supports African rhino covers conservation. We'll put the links of these articles. Um, into the show notes, but he goes through the history of rhino uh, hunting and how he talks about that. You know, rhino proliferation is all tied to females. You want more females, which create more rhinos. Um, you don't want a lot of males on your property because they cause headaches. They start fighting. They start creating territories. They start killing rhinos that are valuable to you. And so, when when it comes to legal hunting of rhinos, 
the percentage of rhinos that are being taken is very, very, very low. And, you know, when you start looking at the numbers of rhinos being killed right now, Kruger Park, bastion of, of wildlife conservation, no hunting in Kruger Park, has lost 70% of its rhinos to poaching. Shishlui Umfalozi, a beautiful game park in Natel, Kosalu Natel, has also just received word that 90 of its rhinos have been poached since January 1. Um, these are places that hunting doesn't occur. Not that we're advocating for hunting to occur in these areas, but hunting rhinos are under absolute threat. Like there is no stopping the surge in rhino poaching. And there are lots and lots and lots of private game reserves that are holding the bastion of rhino conservation right now that hunt them. That's a fact. You said we're not advocating. And just to be clear, Blood Origins is 100% not taking that position, but I have questions about it. If, let's do this. Let's talk about Yellowstone instead of Kruger. Okay. If you, if you, and I'm talking minuscule, if you said each of the non-ESA animals in Yellowstone tags would be allotted for 1% of them each year to hunt the park, mm. would the dollars raised justify that? If the dollars were specifically allocated to Yellowstone National Park upgrades, uh, trail maintenance. I could absolutely see that. The same thing could happen in Kruger. Same thing could happen in Shishlu and Falouz. You don't think that, that applying money generated for hunting a species, whether it's Yellowstone or Kruger, you don't think that the money allocated or or put towards something other than a conservation specifically tied to that species wouldn't come under just super criticism from organizations. I think that if the, the entity that is allowing the hunt to occur has full, you know, cadre or right to decide what they do with the money. If you said you could hunt elk, Ten, 10 people were going to get to hunt elk in Yellowstone. And it was $20 a ticket for the raffle. You could raise $20 million a year for Yellowstone. Probably. I'm not, again, not, I'm not. In, like cordoned off areas, right? They couldn't hunt in certain areas because of tourism. Well, yeah, tourism's you know, make it a make it a late season rifle hunt when there's six foot of snow. The tourism is pretty low. Mm -hmm. I'm not I'm not I'm not no, advocating certainly. for it because part of me also loves the the but Yellowstone. All those places to me are such a conundrum because I love untouched places. I love the concept of untouched places, but Yellowstone in July is basically Disneyland with wild animals. I mean, there's, there's 90 billion people inside the park. It's not untouched, and the animals aren't. Un the animals are way more influenced. Um, I, I don't know. That's I just that was my response to you saying we're not advocating, which we're not advocating. I just had a question, and we're not saying that. Here's the most important thing: and instead of 
the non-advocating. We're not saying that if there was hunting, you wouldn't have an issue with the rhino poaching. That's not what we're saying. But what if, well, what, what, if what if you could raise five million dollars dedicated to decrease the poaching? Very. Oh, you'd certainly have a fighting chance. You're, you're, not, you're never going to eliminate it. I mean, it's it's not an elimination of illegal wildlife trade is not a goal. Constantly working to decrease it is a goal. Is a, is a realistic goal. But if Kruger had an extra $5 million for anti-poaching efforts, and because of that, you know, they were down, what, you know, I, I don't know the math, 10, 10 elephants and 20 rhinos. Is that a, is that a trade that, that's willing to be made? Those numbers. I don't think, yeah, I think like elephants, it, that's a no-brainer because elephants are overrunning Kruger, right? It's all based on population numbers. Um, but no, it's certainly the argument, the general argument typically for being able to raise significant amounts of funding. Uh, let me ask this question to round us out because you've been talking about, go ahead, Carver. I know you want to say uh, something. The only thing I was going to say is, is, so let's just, I mean, just because we had, you know, our articles tonight, the majority of them kind of focused on the rhino specifically, you know, black and white rhino. If if poaching, which we know it is, if poaching is the single most detrimental influence on the rhino population in on the face of the planet. 1,000%. Why would, and I'm just asking this question, why would all of these organizations that are out there pushing to prevent hunting, even though the data shows that, you know, selective hunting on specific animals that have, you know, either reached their prime or the male population has exceeded the, you know, what is allowable or what is optimal for that specific location. If all of these organizations really actually cared about the rhino, wouldn't they, why would they not just start dumping their money that they're using to try and prevent hunting and some of these other, you know, aspects that, that are obviously a pro for the rhino. Why would they not dump their money into anti-poaching efforts, right? Like, why wouldn't why would these these organizations not start adding that money to the anti-poaching piece when that's the actual detriment to that? Legal, I, that's the thing. Legal hunting is actually number three because habitat loss is going to be number one or number two with poaching, and really, no one argues that data. No, no, I mean, no one comes out and says, no, trophy hunting is the number one cause of the loss of population in these animals. It's, it's one and two, depending on the species and the geography, are poaching and habitat loss. It's, it's, they just picked an easy target to fundraise because they didn't have to make poor Africans the target of their attacks. Carver, what you're what you're what you're hitting on here is the crux of the matter, which is these organizations don't actually care about the species. About having more of the species. They're interested in the problem of the species, because the problem of the species, the fact that rhinos are declining, causes money to come into the coffers. Think of it this way. Imagine our rhinos suddenly did very, very, very well. Bad for business. 
Oh, I know. I know what the problem is. I just want our listeners to think about it. Yeah, it's it's now it's the same thing as the wolf, right? We've talked about the wolf before. If all the litigation costs that have occurred over the years around the wolf actually got plowed into habitat conservation and habitat restoration, we'd have phenomenal elk populations and not a wolf problem any longer because wolves would be fine on the landscape. We'd probably have wolves in 20 states. If, right. if, if they just worried about habitat, if they spent their money on livestock depredation, reimbursement, you know, I mean, we would probably have wolves in 20 states right now flourishing if they hadn't attacked the number three cause in, in you know, that, that, that they make. In, I mean, there's a solid argument that hunting does zero to decrease populations. Um, and, you know, that's a it's a it's a difficult thing to understand. My my son. Chance and I, he was actually listening to a Blood Origin, or no, he might have been listening to another podcast, but somebody said something about, you know, that taking a male whitetail really does zero to decrease the population. And, you know, on the surface level, having not thought about it, that didn't make any sense to him. But hunting, legal hunting, really in most places does zero to decrease the population. And, so it's habitat loss and poaching in Africa, and they do so, so, so little to almost nothing to combat those things. And I think it's because it's much easier to raise money to fight rich Americans and rich Europeans, their words, not mine, who are going over there to hunt. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, fellas, another roundup in the books. Um... Thoroughly enjoyed the conversations. Daryl, thank you for pensioning again. Um, you are the man, and thank you for accepting the invitation. Any final words, Carver? No, not at all. Nick, if you want to hunt, let me know. Cody, we'll take you. <laughs> Thanks, guys. Cody, final words. No, I'm good, man. Good discussion. Thank you, everyone. Check out the articles. They're going to be in the show notes. Uh, share the podcast. Share our content. It's the best way to engage the non-hunting community by engaging your essentially your own social media circles because there are non-hunters watching like Nick that are engaging and listening and seeing and creating their own perceptions around hunting and hunters because of what you post and what you share. So share the good stuff. Challenge the bad stuff by saying, are you helping or hurting hunting? Cheers, boys. Cheers. Cheers. Well, that's it for today. I appreciate you listening, as always. Leave a review, share it with your friends, and most importantly, do what's right to convey the truth around hunting.